0: So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite followed by the number 20, FB20, and that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription, so you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year, and we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the numbers 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional.
1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome
0: back, y'all. This episode is brought to you, well, actually by you. Y'all made episode number 95, Carrie Ebert, MSCCC SLP on Delivering Extraordinary Early Intervention, the number one episode of last year. And you asked for more. So we are here back with none other than, wait, can I get a red carpet roll up? Carrie Ebert for take two on early intervention. Ta-da! I'm not going to lie. It was one of my favorite episodes and that's because it embraces routines based early intervention. It embraces parent coaching. And Carrie has the evidence to back what it is, why she does it, and and it works. Um also, she's fun. So yay, so Carrie, hi,
2: thank you so much for coming back. Yay, Yay, thanks for having me. I'm super excited, and um it's just an honor to be asked back to do this again. Well,
0: Yes. I mean, last time you were here, the pandemic was kind of sort of just starting to roll Mm -hmm. out. And you had just bought a new house, I think, Mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. So um,
2: a year later, how is the new home? How are things? Well, you know, um, we put the offer on the house the week that we, right before we went into lockdown. So we were very nervous, you know, not knowing if real estate was considered essential and all of that. But um, we were able to purchase the house. We put our house on the market, sold it within 24 hours. So it was just, it was meant to be, you know, God said, yes, this is, this is how it's going to happen. So we moved into our new home. Uh, My husband and I have a huge uh, home office, which was what we really needed. We have a pool. So that was wonderful in the summer. We are so ready. I don't know. It's like five below here in Kansas City today. (laughs) So we look out at our pool, we're like, is summer ever coming? But we're very grateful to be locked up in this house instead of our other house. We doubled our square footage. And, you know, so it's been just a blessing. And we are grateful um, every day to be here. That's
0: awesome. We we have done so many house projects in the last year. Let me rephrase that. I have attempted so many house projects. <laughs> and then my husband's like, baby, do you need help? And Miss Independent over here is like, no, 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 I got it. So then he rescues me from my house project <laughs> attempts. And then every once in a while, I take on too big of a battle. So, um, bless, we have a lovely electrician company and they, um, they, they they come out and rescue us at least, at least once every six months. So yay. Huzzah. <laughs> yay. Okay, so we have we have a lot to, um, to cover. And I want to preface this with. Um, uh, so one of I, I, since we last talked club, I have a, um, a new position where I'm clinic coordinator at a university. And we have one of, um, an an amazing chair whose specialty is in early intervention. And so she has poured into me so much more about, uh, routine space, early intervention and Juliana Woods, um, research out of uh, Florida. I can't remember which university in Florida. And it has been amazing to see that and, and to see even how my skills have evolved in the last year. And, which I love. I love learning. We have to be a sponge. If you want to stop learning y'all, then you're in the wrong field. Hop out, but um, hang with us. Okay. But one of the questions that I get regularly from the students when they're, and I have for years, but it's made me frame it and see it different is how do we write goals and how do we do data collection and how do we do all of that embracing the parent coaching model? And the answer that I give, I think it's okay, but it's not great. And so I want to give a better answer. And so over the course of this hour, we will meander to that through there amongst all the other places. But I just wanted to, that was one of the um, biggies. And we get asked that a lot on the podcast too. Okay. So long-term goals, but... Can we start with pie? What's your pie? You talk about a pie. I mean, I like lemon pie, but
2: what's your pie? <laughs> well, I, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not talking about apple pie or coconut cream pie. Pie is an acronym. And as a professional speaker, this is something that I have really been talking about for years um, in, my, in my seminars. Um, pie stands for Participation, Independence, and engagement and since I have um, an autistic son uh, I he is now 16 and he has taught me an awful lot uh, about my profession and helped me to really understand um, the the family's role uh, in the therapeutic process and so whenever I write goals or early intervention outcomes what I always try to do is make sure is help families you know make sure that we're writing um, outcomes that are functional so the way I know that if a goal or an outcome is functional is if it is Increases at least one area of pi. So when we think about how young children learn best, right? Um, they learn um, through um, participation in daily routines. So, participating in bath time, participating in meal time, participating in dressing time, right? So, that participation piece, if we can write goals that will increase the child's participation in daily routines, that's functional. Would you agree with that, Michelle? Yes, I struggle
0: with that with um, feeding therapy because I get called in after so many other patients have. Not been as successful, but they've had non-speech oral motor exercises. They've had all of these things, all these people in their face. And I'm like, we have to reframe this from let them feed themselves. Let them
2: start there and participate, right? Yeah. Yes, participation, yes. 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 So participation is P, I is independence. And any goal that we, you know, something my husband and I have said for years is, you know, we're not raising a child, we're raising an adult, right? We always want our son to become more independent in everything that he does. And even at age 16, um, you know, our son continues to gain independence with self-help skills, you know, with learning um, how to, uh, you know, do his own laundry, uh, make his own lunch, things like that. So do two-year-olds become more independent than they were, than they were one? Do three-year-olds, become more independent than they were when they were two, do four-year-olds, do five-year-olds, do 16-year-olds. Independence isn't something that we, you know, that's always functional. How's that? You know, if we're increasing participation, if we're increasing independence, that's functional. And then E is engagement. And from the SLP's perspective, you guys, I mean, you know, we're communication specialists, right? But I always say that um, you know, words without or language without social interaction is just words, you know? You, the, the It's the social communication piece, right? There are so many kids, especially so many um, kiddos on the autism spectrum who can label till the cows come home, right? They can label flashcards, they can wrote, um, you know, memorize the alphabet and numbers and days of the week and it's like, oh, he has so many words in his vocabulary, but I'm like, yeah, but does he use them to engage with other people? Because if you don't have the engagement, the social Engagement, then really, how functional are your words? So I am a big believer in increasing engagement. Even in pre-verbal or minimally verbal kids, we focus on foundation skills such as joint attention, you know, nonverbal imitation, just that engagement. So here's my big thing: is as we intentionally focus on increasing Pi, as we increase the child's participation, independence, and engagement through our um, you know, intervention, here's what's amazing, Michelle. As PI increases, the child's degree of disability decreases. And that is honestly the purpose of all intervention that we provide. I don't care if you're physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, if you're an early intervention specialist, if you're doing feeding therapy, right? It doesn't matter what you're doing. Our goal should always be to increase pi in order to decrease the degree of disability.
0: That is the most simply stated, look, you even got dog excited. Dog is even excited (laughs) about this. That is the most simply stated explanation of what it is that we do in any habilitative rehabilitative setting. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's my favorite, so I just always think about pie. So for years, being that when I sit on the parent side of the table, you know, instead of the clinician side of the table for my son, um, I always look at goals, and I'm always like, okay, I mean, I get it, but I don't understand how it's going to increase. You know, it's not functional. So I am just a huge believer that when we're working with our babies, right, we're working in early intervention, we're working with very young children with developing brains and bodies, which means they have developing nervous systems, which means synaptic connections are being created at a rapid rate which means that's when the child has the ability to learn new skills, right? This is why you and I are so passionate about working with these very young children and supporting their families because most of brain development occurs before we put three candles on the birthday cake. So what we do in early intervention matters more than any intervention, any child's probably gonna get any time in their life because this is when the synaptic connections are being formed at such a rapid rate. And so I am just so passionate as if you can't tell right by my rate of speech. And you know, I get so excited. I talk so fast, but I'm so passionate and so devoted to supporting providers in early intervention, because what we were trained to do in grad school, Michelle was to do direct therapy, right? Yes. And
0: direct therapy is not great therapy because when you y'all, we get them, we're with the families for maybe 30 minutes, maybe one hour a week. Mm -hmm. And if we're taking the child away from the family and working with the child and completely disassociating the parent, the caregiver engagement, they, we have set them for failure completely. There can't be any any carryover, right? Yes. 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 yes, yes. Also I, I see the long-term trajectory because of having a special needs brother-in-law like I know the amount that we pour in now, mm-hmm. what those potential outcomes can look like when they're forty-four. Sure, and <laughs> yes, and 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 we're still cr- and he's still learning. Bless him. Yep. He cannot match his outfits. I mean, he loves dressing in pastel pink and purple, but like <laughs> clad and polka dots. You do, you Uncle Maddie, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But. Um, he he looks like an Easter egg half the time and it makes his heart happy. So like, whatever, but we're still learning on teaching him independency Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and buying a bidet for our house, because that has to happen in the next two years, but he can be independent that way. So remember that when you get them as tiny humans, you're working with a tiny human that will grow and go farther than what you could possibly imagine. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, Michelle, I'd love to give you one little tip on what to listen for, because when we're writing outcomes on the IFSP, or you know, writing your plan of care, um, when you're working with very young children, um, if you work under Part C of IDEA in like a state or early intervention program, birth to three program. So I live and work in the state of Missouri and our birth to three program is called First Steps. And so we are mandated to, um, all of our outcomes have to be family driven, right? So a lot of times people will say to me, well, what do we do when the parent is like, well, I just want him to talk in sentences and the kid doesn't even make sounds yet. You know, like that's a really common thing. Or he's like, oh, I want him to eat steak and potatoes. And you're like, "Um, he has like no ability, no rotary chew. You know what I mean? So sometimes parents have these, uh, let's just call them lofty expectations that you and I as professionals, as clinicians, we analyze the situation. And in our head, what we're saying is this is not feasible. You know, this is not, uh, appropriate. So one of the things when I do, um, you know, my, my interview, when I'm first meeting the family, I, my early intervention case history form, which is available on my website, it's actually like 10 pages long. It's extremely thorough, but it's routines based. So I no longer just ask about like development in a general way. I Go through every routine, and so I ask about meal time, and I ask about you know wake up time. I mean, like for example, how do you know when your child's awake in the morning? Like that's a really because that's communication. And I have parents say things like, "Oh well, I just have to check on him so he doesn't call for you when he's awake." Does he cry? So just getting parents to think about early communication. We don't think to ask the questions, but if you have um, a case history form that is actually routines based, oh my gosh, then you can actually you know get information. Um, to questions that will help you identify what the family's concerns are. So when the family says, no, I don't have any idea when he's awake, I just have to check on him or rely on the baby monitor. I ask, well, do you, do you ever wish that he could call for you, that he could call mama, you know, and let you know when he's awake? And the mom was like, man, I just wish he could do that. If he could just let me know when he's awake, that would be really amazing, you know? So um, one of the things that as I'm going through my case history, what I listen for is when parents say these three words, I just wish. So like I've had parents and and whenever they say, I just wish you need to document right then and there when the parent says, man, I just wish he would look at me when I call his name, or I just wish, um, you know, he would eat more than goldfish crackers, or I just wish he would um, be able to, you know, eat with the family during mealtime, or I just wish um, he wasn't um, so reliant on um, his pacifier during the day. Or, you know, whenever a parent says, I just wish, they're telling you what the outcomes are, because let me tell you about my son, when my son was two and I was in denial about the autism and my son had about 21 spoken words at 18 months. I know cause I'm a speech therapist and I kept track of all of his words. And then he woke up one day and he was gone. All of his words was gone. His language was gone. His uh, joint attention was gone. Everything was gone. And when someone asked me, what do you want to see your son doing in six months? Guess what? I said, I said, I just want him to talk. Because when you ask that question, what do you want to see your child doing? In early intervention, what almost every parent says is, I call it the big two. They either say, I want him to walk or I want him to talk. and the, Or the other thing you hear is this general, oh, I just want him to be caught up. I want him to be ready for school, right? Those are common things that we hear. But you guys, those aren't routines-based outcomes. You can't ask parents what they want and let them give you this global, vague response. We need to be doing a routines-based um, a questionnaire, a routines-based assessment, and listening for the three magic words. I just wish.
0: Okay, I have four hundred questions. So, can we chase a couple squirrels and then come back?
2: <laughs> I love chasing squirrels. Absolutely, okay,
0: perfect. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. So, one one big issue that I have found is that in the world of early intervention, we all speak the same language, but we don't. Okay. Uh So, um, in different States, their early intervention systems are set up differently. I'm from Virginia. We had, um, the overall arching early intervention system. And then they had, uh, because where I lived was so rural, it was RISP, Rural Infant Service Program. Mm. And they had, um, a, uh, One variation there, North Carolina has a different variation on the CDSA or CSDA, Child Development Specialist, CDSA. South Carolina has something called baby net. So number one, folks, we all call it something different. And number two, everybody's interpretation of IDEA Part C is different, and it drives me like, oh, my God, my eyelid is twitching right now because (laughs) I'm just thinking about it. So in Virginia... Um, the variation is that each individual licensed professional is doing weekly sessions, OTPT speech. And then they have a service coordinator. And um, underneath of that service coordinator, they have a specialized family trainer. And the specialized family trainer actually holds a degree in early childhood education or early childhood special Mm -hmm. education, or they have a pertinent degree. Mm -hmm. Well, North Carolina, the variation is that you meet one person who is the service coordinator. They line up the licensed professionals. And then there's, those are the people that do the weekly sessions in the weekly family training. There is not a for lack of a better phrase, a specialized teacher uh-huh. position. Okay. Uh-huh. Now you come to South Carolina, Hawaii, oh, my state. Um, and we have a dual role of an early interventionist and a service coordinator uh-huh. where the a child gets referred, they get referred to the service coordinator slash early interventionist And a lot of people don't realize that early interventionist is supposed to send out to the licensed professional for OT, PT, and speech. However, in our state, they are engaging in scope of practice encroachment. And I have repeatedly had families say, oh, well, the EI said that they were working on that once a week, so we didn't need to work on – we didn't need an OT, a PT, or a speech pathologist
2: yeah, there is, there is some, some every state, like you said, is set up differently. Um, and the EI specialist or that early childhood special education teacher who serves in that role, we call them special educators in our state. Special instructors is actually what they're called. In some states, they're just called early interventionists. So those people um, are what we consider generalists. And PTOT speech, we are considered specialists. And so, um, like you said, some states are set up where they send in this sp- generalist who um, tries to take care of everything. They're cheaper to pay typically than PTOT speech. So most states prefer to use them. And because they're generalists, they kind of know a little bit about this. And you know what I mean? They know a little bit about all five um, domains of development, but um, they're not, one of the biggest complaints is that they're not bringing in the specialists um, as uh, necessary or as appropriate. Um, Other states uh, that like in our state, that special instructor is just, One of the four primary team members. There's PTOT speech and this special instructor. And we pick the primary service provider in the state of Missouri based on the child's um, who we think would be the best fit for the family. And then those other professionals are used as secondary service providers. Anyways, every state is set up so different. And we could do, you know, an entire episode just on, you know, the variations. But you have to understand that specialists should be brought in when there are um, things that are outside the scope of practice of a generalist. And so I'm I prefer states where the specialist is is allowed to go in. If speech is the primary concern, why would you put a generalist in there, right? Um, So um, I'm a big believer in bringing in the specialist. If a child has um, cerebral palsy, for example, I would think we'd want you know early on either to get PT or OT in there so that motor aspect you know can can be addressed. And so, anyways, we could certainly talk a lot about the differences. um, But I think it's I'm really glad you brought up that every state is different and. Um, uh, that state should be moving to more of a coaching model. But just because we're coaching doesn't mean you shouldn't be using your specialists, okay? Because you and I are highly skilled. Specialists, and we go to school for a long time and take a lot of continuing education. I mean, when I think about, you know, my specialty area um, is apraxia, childhood apraxia of speech. There are a lot of SLPs who don't have, you know, the necessary training to uh, address that. So why would a generalist have that training? Does that make sense? We need to make sure that we are using our specialists um, so that children and families are getting um, the appropriate and necessary services.
0: Thank you. If you were here and there was no pandemic, I would hug you so hard right now. <laughs> virtual, like, hug, a, okay? virtual, a, a virtual hug. Okay. Right virtual hug. Virtual hug. This is what uh validation on my yes. soul. Yes. yes. Okay, yes. so end of soapbox, we can okay. get back on track, but end I point. just needed to make sure everybody <laughs> understood. Each state has a different interpretation. Bottom line, get these subject matter expert specialists. Do not you yourself. Or have someone else engage in scope of practice encroachment? Ta-da. Okay. All right. Yes. because that, And that correlated to the parent-driven. Because when I think about, okay, well, the OT or the PT may be working on like pull the stand and I'm working on um, requesting an object. So I'm placing an object in a place where I know that they have to pull the stand
2: to reach to it. But I Thank you. Oh. Yes. Can yeah. I just freak out and get on my soapbox for a minute is sometimes what, <laughs> what, well, sometimes what specialists will say is, well, it's unethical. I can't, you know, have another provider. Cause I, you know, like I had a PT say to me once, well, Carrie, I'm not comfortable doing swallowing therapy. And I was like, well, good Lord, I'm not comfortable with you doing swallowing therapy either. But you guys, <laughs> let's talk about a key word here. And the key word is strategies. If there is a skilled strategy that I can coach a parent on, I can sure as Heck, uh, coach a, a PT or an OT on a strategy. So, for example, if the strategy is that this baby is at risk for aspiration and he should never have a bottle lying flat on the ground, does that make sense? He should be at least at a minimum of a 45 degree angle. Let's say that's the strategy. If I can expect a parent to understand the strategy, if a PT walks into a home visit and sees a baby lying flat on the floor, they need to be aware of the strategy that was put in place by the SLP that says, you know, this child needs to be at 45 degree angle. So when you say, like, I, I use um, step stools all the time in speech therapy because sometimes the PT wants the child to build core strength and to be able to, you know, step up on a step stool and step off. So why wouldn't I create an obstacle course in my speech therapy session? This is what PT and OT want. So I can embed those strategies into my activities, even though what I'm focusing on are maybe more language or speech-based activities. So just remember that what we are coaching parents... And and when we do um, colleague-to-colleague coaching, we are not asking them to do our therapy. That would be completely unethical and beyond our scope of practice. But we are asking other professionals and parents and caregivers and teachers to embed specific skilled strategies that we have identified as being effective in supporting an area of development for the child. Yes, okay thank you yes excellent (laughs) we have our soap boxes don't we (laughs) yeah
0: yeah keep plastic chewy vibrating things out of my kids mouths and let them feed themselves is like normally my go-to but like i love it i love it
2: i love it well like think about you're a feeding person think about you know when pts say roll up um like a towel and put it on the side of the baby in the high chair so it gives them some core stability See, you don't have to be a pt to do it it maybe took a pt to to teach you the skilled strategy and give you the rationale you know for why it's important but or like you know I listened to like Melanie Potock and and she says you know you got to make sure that knees are 90 degrees when they're eating you know that they if your feet were dangling if you had to sit at a table and eat and your legs were dangling you'd have a tough time staying focused on eating too right you need to be grounded you need your feet firm flat on some surface you don't have to be a specialist to implement the strategy right Okay, but I kind of give you my analogy for that one. Yes, We're I learned
0: the petite women in the room when you go to a tall tabletop mm-hmm. and you throw a pint or two down, or maybe three uh-huh. if it's been the end of the semester, <laughs> and then you go to get down from the tall table. Yeah. It's not your most graceful because no. you don't know where your body is is in space. in
2: space. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Eating eating is one of the um, few things in the world that we do as human beings that requires all eight sensory systems to be working together. And so if there is any dysregulation in any of the eight sensory systems, I promise you eating is going to be a challenge. So that proprioceptive sense, that body awareness sense is absolutely essential for eating. It is essential for talking. It is, it is critical. And I just don't think that we focus, see here I'm going off on sensory. We don't focus enough on proprioceptive input because we live in a media manic world where children are spending their entire early childhood sitting in front of a screen sedentary, so you don't even want to get me started on the screen time issue and sensory development. <laughs>
0: No, but we're definitely coming back for another one. I think what we'll do is have the third one just be called, just call it
2: soapboxes, And then oh you and I boy. can just expound on all the
0: things. We have to do a work.
2: double episode because I have so many soapboxes. Anyone no, who follows me on social media knows I get on my soapboxes on social media quite a bit, but.
0: This is awesome. Oh my God. You were the energy that I needed. Folks, right before Carrie and I started today, I got a phone call from my mechanic and they said, Bessie, 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 Bessie was bought with 16 miles on her and we've done a lot of home health over the years. And so Bessie's now cruising in at 205,000 and they're <laughs> like, no, darling, she's going to need about $1,500 worth of work. And I was like,
2: oof. Oh, <laughs> so ouch. So like, oof is a big oof. Yes. So this
0: is the, but this is why Bessie has 205,000 miles on her because we have soapboxes and joys in our heart. Right. So and yes. we're passionate. shall okay, we are passionate, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Okay, so our parent-driven our parent-driven outcomes allow us to engage in interprofessional education and interprofessional practice so that we can give the strategies without crossing that line of scope of practice encouragement. And we can do this functionally, and functionally is, is the key here. And with respect to PO intake, with respect to language acquisition, there are... Instances where we do have to do a touch of direct to model. Sure.
2: Oh yes, and oh, yes. and and
0: we're not saying that you can't do. So, for example, With like the if I'm too. Yes, yes. If if I need to teach a pacing cue, if I need to teach a strategy on um, uh, how to do a liquid wash for um bolus holding and a lateral buccal, right? Like I can, I can teach that in the moment and then model it for the parent and then help teach the parent how to do that activity. So we're not saying that, that the people, people could get so hung up on, well, it's all coaching. There is a time and a place for direct. However, the
2: direct needs to be morphed into a coach. Can I tell you what I call it? Okay, I call it a hybrid model, okay? People think that if you're using coaching, then there's no hands-on with the child. And here is what everybody needs to understand. If you're doing the dishes, stop right now and listen, okay? Early intervention services, <laughs> early intervention services are as hands-on as they need to be. Anybody who tells you that you should not put your hands on the child, and by that, I don't mean literal hands. They sometimes are if you're PT especially. But I mean, working directly with the child is absolutely still an essential part of what we do. Because here's the deal, guys. As a skilled Um, professional. I cannot coach parents on strategies unless I figure out which strategies actually work. And every child responds differently to different strategies. Sometimes strategies work, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I have to add certain levels of cueing. Sometimes I have to modify uh, the activity. So that is my skilled service is that hands-on that I do with the child. But then once I figure out the strategy, then I step aside and now the parent steps in. And then what I'm going to do is coach the parent during the interaction with the child. And I'm actually now providing feedback to the parent or the caregiver or the teacher, whoever this adult is, because here's the deal you guys, very young children don't wake up in the morning and make decisions that benefit their development. So if you (laughs) only do, am I right? If you only do direct therapy with a two-year-old, then your assumption is, and you do no coaching with the adult, then your assumption is when this two-year-old wakes up tomorrow, he's going to remember what you taught him yesterday in therapy and he's going to wake up and he's going to embed strategies into his daily routines and we know that ridiculous. Who does wake up in the morning and make decisions that will benefit their child's development? That is the parent. So the direct, so here's my, you want to hear one of my, my favorite spiels is that the the therapy session, the early intervention session is for um, teaching new skills, but life is for practicing them. Okay, so what we do in this session is we determine what the strategies are, we analyze, we implement, we adjust, we accommodate, we determine the queuing hierarchy, and then we coach the parent or the caregiver. And so uh, the adult is the one who learns during the session not the child, okay? This is the time for us to assess and then we coach the caregiver. So learning for the adult happens during the, or during the early intervention session. Practice can happen during the early intervention session, but the real learning for the child happens between early intervention sessions during this thing called life. And that is in a nutshell what routines-based intervention is all about.
0: I'm, I'm typing this out as quickly as my <laughs> thumbs will allow. Early intervention session is for a caregiver to learn the strategy mm-hmm. and the
2: learning for the child occurs between during... sessions. Yeah. During real life. See what we were trained to do using the medical model of therapy is that we had to make Progress. We had to document progress. We had to collect data. We had to make progress in our sessions. But we know that in order to master a new skill, okay, you the only way you master a new skill is through repetition and practice. So what we used to say using the medical model was, oh, then he needs more therapy, right? Oh, can you come twice a week, Miss Carrie? Oh, gee, he's not making much progress. Can you come three times a week, Miss Carrie? So here's what I say: I say no, 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 no. When a child isn't making progress, he doesn't need more therapy. That's what I provide as the therapist. What the child needs is more intervention. Who provides the intervention? That's everybody but the therapist. The therapist is there to to do the coaching and the assessment and all of that, but it's the caregivers, the teachers, the daycare providers, the nannies, the grandparents who provide the inter- Invention, so that oh, I just mm, sorry, I'm like on a major soapbox now, but I just get so tired of hearing people say that oh well, in coaching, um, you know this kid he has apraxia or he has a feeding you know disorder or whatever it is, so we can't do coaching. What do you mean you can't do coaching? Yes, you can. You have you must do coaching, but it doesn't mean it negates the hands-on that we were trained to do. Does that make sense? That it's a hybrid approach. I wish we'd stop saying you either do direct therapy or you do coaching. I have been doing a lot of, um, grad level, uh, guest lectures. Um, I did one at Florida state. I'm doing, I've done a couple for Keene university in, um, in New Jersey. And what I keep telling them is in early intervention, you need to embrace a hybrid model instead of viewing it as either, or does that, is that helpful at all? Yes. And you have no idea how much you just
0: poured into my soul. (laughs) I... (laughs) I have had writer's block on one line to open the final section of my book with before I submit it for uh-huh. print, and um, I'm gonna quote you, lady, because Excellent. you thank Excellent. you because you just literally answered <laughs> the prayer that I've had since two thirty this morning oh, when I, I woke up. and I oh, yes, no, I this it. is this is perfect because that's that's what I hear. Okay, if you need me. You don't want me. I'm kind of like the therapist that like swoops in mm-hmm. when like everything's gone to you know what in a mm-hmm. handbasket, mm-hmm. right? Like that's my lot in world and mm-hmm. I'm totally okay with that. Mm-hmm. But I hear a lot where they say, oh, well, we had one therapist for language and one therapist for feeding and mm-hmm. and, and you really need somebody to come in and do like an, a third sustenance. It's the medical mm-hmm. related model. But when I come in and I flip the script completely and I say, okay, so if you need me, it's going to be one session a week Mm -hmm. and
2: I will do all of that in one session. That's right. It's routines-based. We don't talk about, oh, what skill are we teaching? We talk about what's, here's my number one question I ask when I I show up for a session. I always start with the positive. Tell me something that has gone well this week, you know, something your child has done that you're proud of or a routine that went well. I always let them brag about their kid first, right? Awesome. But then the most important question I ask in the visit is, tell me what your biggest challenge was this week with little Joey, right? What was your biggest challenge? And when the, because that's what I'm here to help you with is whatever your biggest challenge is, okay and if you follow me on social media yes I'm an SLP but I'm also a parent of an autistic child who has severe sensory processing disorder so my posts recently have all been about strategies to help kids who are scared to take a bath strategies to help kids who fear haircuts because I'm an expert in sensory strategies because I live it every day of my life it is not outside my scope of practice this is routines based these are strategies okay that we are saying a lot of it has to do with communication and verbal preparation and preparing the child does a child no, you don't just pick them up and lay them down and change their diaper. You prepare them and say, hey, buddy, in two minutes, we're going to change your diaper. And maybe if they have receptive language problems, you're going to show them a diaper so that they actually understand what's coming. You see what I mean? Like my whole process is supporting families. What was your most challenging part of the week? And so if you're not asking that question, if you're just showing up with a bag of toys and sitting down on the floor and playing with the child, I promise you this, you're not doing routines-based intervention. And everybody, you know, did we talk about the bag of toys last time? Do you yeah. Love yes, them. we did. But also pandemic, people for the love of Pete, leave the toys yeah, alone. Yeah, No, no, you shouldn't be, this is this is why I'm, I'm convinced the pandemic happened was for early intervention professionals to learn how to do bagless therapy, okay? Because you shouldn't need anything at all because you shouldn't be focusing on, play is one of many routines that happens in a young child's day. We're all in agreement with that. But do you know, we have research that shows that there are very few parents who sit on the floor for extended periods of time and actually play toys with their children. You wanna know when learning happens for young children? Um, while parents are nearby doing chores and the child is playing like in that vicinity. But the most of learning for young children happens during routines, during bath time, meal time, running errands, riding in the car, um, changing diapers, getting dressed. So our job is to embed strategies into the routines that already happen. Not to suggest to parents that you need to buy a shape or six puzzles and a Mr. Potato Head and sit on the floor and teach isolated skills out of context because that is not early intervention. I am on a roll, man. Yes, uh, I am. I'm
0: freaking loving this. Okay, (laughs) girl crush confirmed. Okay, so case here's my here's my example. Okay, um, uh, okay. I have been mentored by a colleague, Dr. Rebecca Wada, um, whose PhD, her dissertation is in implementation science, where she sits back and she says, and we had her on in January, um, and then you just talked about the diaper episode which um, sorry, I I promise it correlates to an episode about like how like, we say in two minutes, we're going to change your diaper and you prep and you give a visual cue. And for and we in in February this past month, we had um, Dylan Hartley on to talk about polyvagal theory and how to um, take take and make play happen in place of fear, especially for our patients that have like PTSD and trauma uh and blah, blah, blah. So like all of this, and he literally talks about a hair blow dryer. So that was perfect when you, but like, it's this crescendo, right? All of these different things. So case in point, I have a little guy who, um, and I am a huge proponent of embedding speech generating devices Mm -hmm. right out the gate for individuals who, especially when we have a known diagnosis That will limit their spontaneous verbal output. Give them the gift of language early. Yes, yes. So I have this little guy and we go into the house and mom has a newborn baby brother who in his own light, um, he's a miracle, um, major pregnancies during the complication, interventricular hemorrhages, the whole nine yards. And we have a... Typically, developing newborn who had traumas and is actually overcoming the trauma. And then I'm treating the three year old with an AAC device. Okay. So this is, and meanwhile, mom's variable, which is um, a factor in my implementation, a factor of the carryover and buy in, is newborn baby brother is having repeat MRIs. We're debating do we need um, a, oh my gosh, I just brain farted on it, a shunt, a VP shunt mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. So, all of those are real life components for this kiddo, right? Right. And so, mom said, He's asking for families, but I'm because they've had so many other family coming in to help, right? Socially distanced, but they need help because in this season of their life, they're having a lot of their um, village there to support because that's what they need. Sure. And she goes, I need help so that he can. Tell us who he wants to come. Oh. So what did we do? We went through and we added specific family members into his communication device. And we had to set up his communication device. But here's where here's where I am. We're doing parent coaching and parent driven. I'm giving mom verbal recommendations on it. And mom and the family are taking ownership over their child's device, they are plugging it in. They are seeking out the um, family members' photos because this little guy does best with photos, like you sure. did on his AAC device. And um, and when I'm there, we're working through the strategies of, okay, do you know how to access where that family member is? Do we know how to convey that I love you? Where is? Mm-hmm. And and then and it has, it has been. Awesome. And mind blowing because mom said when we were there last week and it like warmed my heart, she was like, you know, um, uh, grandmama, I'm making that up. They call grandma Mama a very distinct mm-hmm, name, but it's mm-hmm. not grandmama. Um, they were like, grandmama took him to school. And when grandmama came to pick him up, he went right over to his device Purposefully isolated his index finger, which for this kid is like God <laughs> godsend. Thank you, Ot, mm-hmm. and said, "I love you, Grandmama." And oh. where is? And then starts looking for her husband. Oh, and I'm like, yes, yes, this is why. But like, it's, oh. it's, you know, like this took so much. That's a parent driven outcome. Mom needs help. Right. We have to thats the struggle. You identify yes. the struggle, right? Yes, yes. that those are mm-hmm. those are factors into the effectiveness of our parent coaching. Oh, I love it. and our direct therapy are environmental situations of newborn and extra family and. Sure. but those are, we are working on parent-driven. I want him to be able to tell us who he wants because I, I need it. help right now. I love it. Can okay, I tell you, Michelle,
2: so- real quick, what my, my go-to, like, because I have all these one-liners as a professional speaker, you know, it's just something that I get all these one-liners. So here's what I love to say about AAC, Augmentative and Alternative Communication, is it should never... Be considered a last resort, and that's one of the concerns that I have is that people are like, "Oh, well, he's been in speech therapy for a year and he's not making any progress, so I think I'm going to go to AAC." And I'm like, "Well, people, this is why I drink so heavily because I don't understand why you, you know, in what universe would you would you would you make AAC a last resort? It's the first goal. When in my apraxia course that I do, our first goal is establish AAC. I'm not talking to you about motor learning theory until you've established AAC." every human being has a basic right to be able to communicate, right? To express themselves. So people, AAC is not a last resort. Are we all clear? It's first. It's the number one goal.
0: Right out the gate in early intervention. I mean, I've got nine and 12 month olds or individuals that are cognitively functioning between nine and 12 months old. And if they can choose what it is that they want to eat, you have you you, you, are, can, you, you have are, the basis. Yes, you, yes, and
2: we have research. It was in an ASHA leader, um, 2017. Davidson was the last name. I use this re- research. I don't have it in front of me, but she said um, they have found that uh, the earlier you implement AAC, the better the outcomes are. And they say 12 months is um, uh, considered um, when you should begin it. 12 months of age. So to say, oh well, this kid's only 18 months old. I can't do AAC. You're wrong. You are wrong. Okay. So, and I don't mean to sound like all like, you know, up in your business right now, but I just get too many kids referred to me because since I'm a professional speaker, I can't take a lot of um, kids for therapy. Does that make sense? Because I only have a handful of of direct clients because families that I work with, because I'm usually traveling, traveling all over the country. COVID has, of course, changed it. Now I'm just doing webinars, but um, so the kids that I get are the kids who've been in speech therapy for a year, sometimes two years and made no functional gains um, with, with becoming verbal because I'm in a practice a specialist. And so I'm always floored that I get these kids who have been in speech for over a year in the early intervention program. An SLP is coming once a week to see this kid and he doesn't talk and he has no AAC established. And I'm like, I don't understand what you've done for a year. Like it just blows Thank you. my mind. So mm-hmm. AAC mm-hmm. is the first goal you write in early intervention, right? I mean, it has to be, if the child doesn't talk, doesn't gesture, doesn't have a way to communicate, then AAC is really, really important.
0: Okay, that gets us to the goal and the data collection because okay. this is where I come in with my soapbox. Okay. Okay, so one of my favorite goals for AAC and I got it from an ASHA SIG-12. Oh, okay. From I don't know how many years ago because uh-huh. let my gray show, but <laughs> it said given visual verbal cue of desired object in line of sight or you know talked about right okay um patient will indicate basic once needs eight out of ten trials for three consecutive sessions and you can go further and quantify are they going to indicate basic wants and needs on a speech generating device with from a field of eight are they going to do this mm-hmm. with verbal output bah, 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 bah. but Here's where it gets hairy. I have to write a plan of care and an eval such that insurance will approve it. Mm. For it to go through insurance, it has to be medically necessary. Oh, I see. For the IFSP, am I writing a super technical Medicaid approvable goal? No. We, We marry the two. Patient will or... Billy Bob Joe mm-hmm. that's my go to will <laughs> communicate from a field of whatever via whatever once needs
2: Let me tell you, I'm finding, I just opened my presentation here because I just want to show you mine. um, My outcomes are usually, so here's my AAC. So my very first goal for my apraxia course, and I just usually give examples. You know what I mean? Like I don't, so I mean, you sometimes, let me see where it is here. Okay, so, okay, AAC. So here's my, Carlos will use five signs, pictures and or words to communicate what he wants to play during center time at daycare, three days per week for four consecutive weeks. Or master. Maggie will communicate her desired snack using signs, pictures, and or words on five different days per week for four consecutive weeks. So the reason I write him like that is because I don't know if he's going to use signs, gestures, pictures, words. Does that make sense? So I don't ever I don't write a separate AAC goal because my goal is what I would call multimodality type communication, right? Because for a lot of my little's, they know three signs, they say five word approximations, they, you know, use the picture for Pop-Tart to request Pop-Tarts because nobody knows the sign for Pop-Tart and you know <laughs> what I mean? You know what I mean? So I have these kids who have multiple modalities, so I try not to limit AAC So I always call mine AAC and early speech goals. Does that make sense? Where I just kind of throw it all into one. So there's so many different options.
0: Yeah, and normally when I'm doing it with like a specific ACE, it's because we've got the device and we're doing the official Absolutely. device trial. Absolutely. So, yes, and which you, the way I write it, for that to yeah. me
2: will include the device. Now, in Missouri, where I live and work, we don't have to write goals um, that meet Medicaid requirements. Like, we write our IFSP outcomes and our Medicaid system accepts them. Do you know what I mean? If the kid is on an IFSP, we still can get paid for Medicaid and not have to fill out. So, we are a unique state, I think, in that our therapists don't have to turn around, our EI providers don't have to turn around and write different goals that are medically necessary. Does that make sense? Because we should, our Medicaid system and our third-party payers should accept the IFSP. Because if anybody understood how young children with developing brains and bodies, how infants and toddlers learned, they would accept IFSP family-driven, family-centered outcomes. But- they won't because it's a medical, you know what I mean? The medical model is paying for an early intervention model type service. And that's why we need to revamp the whole system. If I were in charge of the world, okay, the payer source would, ha- would. I mean, the, the payer, the way you pay EI would need to be based on function, not medical necessity. So um, I, I just, mm, I struggle, but AAC is not optional, and you, there are ways to write it without even having to speak about a specific device necessarily because pictures, you know what I mean, are on the device. So when I say Carlos will use five signs, pictures, and or words to communicate what he wants to play during center time or what he wants to eat during snack time, the whole point is every outcome, if you're truly doing routines-based intervention, every outcome should be be based on a specific, you know, it should be specific and fit into a specific routine, bath time, bedtime, meal time, dressing time, play time, because otherwise it's not actually routines based. And that's where our states have a lot of work to do is getting and actually writing routines based um, outcomes. Do you know how much time and energy it would save me if we didn't have to turn around and do it twice? I don't know <laughs> how you do it. And I would get out of the eye if that was me because I'm, I I'm, i don't believe in paperwork. I'm going to tell you right now, like I'm a skilled professional and what I do makes a difference <clears throat> and paperwork irritates me so much. That's why I refuse yes. to work in the schools because it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? What yes. SLPs in the schools are expected to do. My, I am not going to sit there and do paperwork all day when there are children who need my services, who benefit from my services. So I am frustrated that, you know, over the years, we've had to justify what we do, that we're that disrespected, that we can't just provide the cert. You know what I mean? I get it. I do. I mean, I, and I don't mean to like start something here, but I'm just saying there's a reason I'm, I'm in private practice, you know, because I'm going to do things my way. <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. But you're way you have the evidence to support why you're doing. And that's why to get back to our earlier conversation, excuse me, every state does it Different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I've seen individuals struggle when they go from one state to state. Now, one thing I do want to point out is that both of our goals have it, they will do it X times for X consecutive right. It's measurable.
2: What do they have to be? They have to be observable, measurable, and functional. As long as your outcome is observable, measurable, and functional, you can write it any way you want, right? It just needs to be the parent needs to understand it. Because can I rock your world totally? I know we're getting close to time here. Sometimes people will ask me. I have a whole six-hour seminar that I do called the ABCs of Early Intervention, where I go into all of, I mean, just major detail about all of this. And um, one of the questions I get asked is, how do you collect data in early intervention? And I always say, well... Well, I, I don't collect data in early intervention. And people like, they're like, what do you mean you don't collect data? You have to. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Because let's be very clear that when you're using this coaching model, the parents are the ones who tell you when the outcomes have been met. So um, do we have time? Can I just talk to you real quickly about, let me find it in my handout here, the difference between clinician-mediated intervention and caregiver-mediated intervention? Can we go yes, here? Be-
0: yes, because I with, this is the piece with the data that because our state specifically runs on the medical even though we're in the framework of yeah it's it's so frustrating because i have to show data for insurance purposes to justify a $10,000 on this, an is wrong. Device. this is
2: wrong, this is yes. wrong, this is wrong and we are going to, I don't know I always say, I've been a professional speaker since 2009 and I always say this one of these days, somebody in the audience is going to be political and I'm going to get my foot in the door and I'm going to explain to the world what early intervention is because you've got this third party payer business that's based on the medical model. Early intervention is not supposed to be based on the medical model. So anyway, since we're we're on time. Let me just buzz through this with you, okay? In clinician-mediated intervention, which is what we are trained to do, okay? Clinician-mediated, meaning I'm in charge, right? So here's what happens. The clinician gathers information on the caregiver's priorities. You know, sure, we still care. What are you concerned about, mom, dad, right? We actually educate caregivers. We're skilled professionals, so of course we can educate. We um, try to infuse the caregiver's priorities, you know, into our treatment sessions as applicable. We are the ones who actually implement the treatment plan during the session. And we are the ones who track progress, okay? This is clinician mediated. What does the caregiver do? We hope that they observe the session, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they shower, or they're on their phone playing Candy Crush Saga, or you know, I don't know. They're they're not, you know, they might be there in 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 body, but they may or may not be participating. And then the other job of the caregiver is to complete homework left by the clinician. You know, so uh, what happens is we leave these homework assignments, these extra things we want parents to do. Well, what states are supposed to be doing in the birth to three world is shifting to a caregiver mediated um, approach. So what that means is. Is the clinician still gathers information, the clinician observes those naturally occurring interactions between the parent or the caregiver and the child, and then what we do is we use reflective questioning and we provide feedback on those parenting interactions, okay? So then there's this new thing that is the caregiver and the clinician together, Okay, this isn't a part of clinician mediated intervention. But under caregiver mediated intervention, during the session, the caregiver or the adult, the parent, and the clinician engage in collaborative planning and problem solving. And I end every session with this statement. Based on what we've talked about or practiced today, what do you want to focus on until I come back next week? Yes. And that's how we begin collaborative planning and collaboration and problem solving, okay? So what is the caregiver? What is their responsibility then when I'm not there? To embed the intervention strategies in their daily routines between sessions and their job is to track progress, okay? So this is what floors everybody. When people ask me, how do I keep data? I'm like, how am I keeping data when the outcome is functional? When the outcome is that little Joey will tolerate wearing a life jacket, because this family lives on a lake. a lot of lakes here in the Kansas City area. People live on the lake a lot. So there's often an outcome. Little Joey will tolerate wearing a life jacket so the family can go boating together um, by the fourth of the, for one hour. So the family can go boating for one hour um, by their 4th of July, you know, family reunion. How the heck am I going to Um, know if that's been met. Does that make sense? When outcomes are written, um, little Joey will feed himself half of each meal um, using his fingers or a spoon by his second birthday. Well, how will I know? Because I'm not there for three meals a day. So do you understand when? Until we can learn how to write actual routines-based um, outcomes and goals, um, we're never going to be able to get here. But when they are written as routines, there's no way the care, the, the clinician keeps data. I don't keep data on anything. I do from a speech perspective. I give parents like, um you know, like a, when it's language, especially like how many words is he saying? And I have like a little checklist so parents can like keep it on the refrigerator and track. But um yellow sticky notes, this is the hard thing with a, with a podcast. I can't show you, but I like, you know, those bigger pads of yellow sticky notes that have lines on them so they're lined sticky notes once we determine the joint plan so it's one specific strategy embedded into one specific routine so here's what a lot of slps will do well here's the strategy i want you to focus on just label things in the environment to help build joey's vocabulary so parents are like okay that sounds easy enough i'm going to tell you right now that's a ridiculous strategy because can you imagine being the parent so what are you gonna do, walk around all day going window door shoe you know um bus um pen pencil that's not how anybody learns language what the heck are we doing You don't just label things in random order and think that kids are going to learn language. But here's an actual joint plan. This is great. When mom says, I'm just really worried because he doesn't seem to know many words, you know, I feel like it's just, you know, he doesn't follow directions and he doesn't know words. Say, okay, so I know you said you take him grocery shopping with you. That's the one thing you do where you leave the house together and you go grocery shopping during the pandemic and... Mom says, yeah. And, you know, he gets kind of fussy. And so I say, okay, well, here's a, what do you think about this? What do you think about what's something Joey could do? at the grocery store um, so that you could engage him and talk to him, you know, instead of giving him your phone, which is what every parent does. What's something you could do? Because coaching is about asking thought thought provoking questions. What's something you could do? And I'm, what I wanna do is lead the parent down the road of saying something like, well, I guess I could hand him uh, items and, and tell him what it is as we put it in the cart. Ding, 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 there's our joint plan. Um, parent will, you know, label um, items at the grocery store as they're put in the cart to help build Joey's receptive vocation. Does that make sense? So it's one specific um, uh, strategy that is embedded into one specific routine. Here's another one. Hand Joey a washcloth during bath time and instruct him which body part to wash. Wash your tummy, wash your toes, wash (laughs) your ears. Isn't that a better way to teach body parts than to give parents homework that they need to sit down with Mr. Potato Head and teach body parts out of context? That's not how we teach, right? It's better to embed it into routines that already naturally Occur, So I don't collect data in early intervention. And that's what literally blows people's minds. Now, I understand what you're saying. If you're billing a third party payer, you're going to have to have two ways to collect data. One, the parent's going to tell you the functional stuff that's happening. And then you're going to do this ridiculous data collection that's that's pretty much not functional, but it's going to make. Can you make it functional? I
0: have, I have made it functional. It's how you write the goal. Excellent. Let's hear it. Okay. So with my, um, with my PO intake goal, um, my, cause I'm, I'm, I'm feeding first and then AAC secondary, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So uh-huh. for some of my patients, it's patient's family will follow up with new instrumental swallow evaluation. Because we could be doing tapered weaning protocols. So that's, that's measurable. We have the data from the instrumental swallowy bell, X, Y, and Z. Um, it could be, uh, say we're doing um, modified SOS with some food chaining, with some get permission approach, and we're working on expanding the foods that we take, right? So the, when we're doing that, I have the families create a feeding log. And we do need that. We need that for input sure. output. We need that for metabolic caloric. I mean, there's there's medical necessity mm-hmm. for why we're doing that, especially when we've got like seizure meds and all of those on boards. So patient will um, uh, successfully consume three new foods for three trials mm-hmm. for three weeks, right? And that's measurable. Without, yeah. Those yeah. those are those are functional goals mm-hmm. and they're measurable. Absolutely. Like especially if I'm adding in a couple of vegetables or if I'm adding in um, I'm doing tapered weaning protocols. Sure. Patient will consume um its level um, to liquids without overt signs symptoms of aspiration. And see, I in my state,
2: be- the reason we can't do stuff like that on the IFSP is because that's not family friendly language. So, so that's,
0: yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's where I have to write the medical one. And then we, we make it simpler for the IFSP, which is where I have to do rework and I hate rework. Okay. But this y'all, it has to be, it has to be functional. And unfortunately, what a lot of when we were in graduate school because a lot of practitioners and early intervention we were in grad school 10 years ago or more right best practice routines based intervention is really coming to its own within the last 10 years and so what we were taught for the direct service model that you have to write your goals this way you have to do these things it's not current best practice and that's why we have to continue pursuing and engaging in ongoing education. And, and I have, I have one, one extra little soapbox that just keeps coming up. Um, I understand that there are clinicians younger than us that have advanced skill set. That's amazing. That's awesome. You've learned. However, there is something to be taken into consideration. When you have lived in addition to the learning, because those live, yes, those experiences play a huge part in our
2: evidence-based triangle. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the more experienced you become, at least I, I will say this about me, the more experienced I become. I've been an SLP for 25 years, and my confidence has, you know, just really increased substantially because I now do everything evidence based. As a professional speaker, when I write a new seminar, it all has to be evidence based. So the fact that I have the evidence behind what I do, you know, people say, oh, pediatric SLP, early intervention SLP, all you do is just play. And I'm like, honey, have a seat because I'm about to hear- <laughs> fill you with an earful right now because I'm not a glorified babysitter and I'm not a respite care worker and I don't just play for a living. What I do, and I do very well, is I play with a purpose. And what that means is I intentionally embed skilled strategies into playtime, bath time, mealtime, dressing time, every single routine in order to enhance the child's learning and development. But nobody better ever say or suggest that I just play for a living because that is not true. And we have to know how to defend our profession, how to defend what we do, and that we, just because that we work with, with you know the birth to three population doesn't make what we do less important or somehow easier than people who work in hospitals or people you know who work in clinics or whatever working in the family's home is the most I mean, I feel very honored to be invited into these families' homes and to be able to support the parents' parenting skills. And that's what this is really about, is empowering. The best way to empower an adult is to educate them, okay? That's what I want to end with, because I know we need to be done here. But when you educate an adult, when you educate a parent, that is how you empower them. And that is our role, our primary role in early intervention.
0: Yes. Okay, One, one thought on my end. When you work in early intervention... While it is an educational model, we are treating babies that survived that wouldn't have survived 15 years ago. And we're treating them with their hands tied behind our backs because for the most part, we don't even get the medical records to understand and fully capture the picture of the kid that we're there to work with. So kudos to you for sticking it out because I've worked in hospitals. I've worked inpatient, outpatient, nursing home. I've worked in all the settings with the exception of the NICU, but I had a baby in the NICU. And let me tell you, this is hard, but you can do it and you can do it well. So doing it, doing it, and doing, doing it. it. Okay, I'll stop singing. Love it. <laughs> okay. I love our, it. I'll, thank you, Carrie. Carrie, my God, thank you. Okay, episode three, soapboxes <laughs> coming to you. I can't wait. <laughs> we will, will, let's do that for
2: our Merry Christmas episode. Oh, How that'll about? be a hoot. I love, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. All right, thanks for having me on, Michelle. I really appreciate it.
0: Feeding Matters Be kind and feed those babies.